Uh, we're going to go back to Hosea chapter 7. We welcome all you that are joining us wherever you're at around the globe. Those of you who may get, uh, run across this podcast, we thank you for uh, joining together with us as we try to proclaim God's word and stick with it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to get in your word tonight. Your word you have magnified above your name according to Psalm 138. And we know that heaven and earth is going to pass away someday soon. But your word will stand forever. And then there will be a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. All of which we are excited about, Lord. We are on the right side because we're following you. And we just thank you for your comfort and love. We even thank you for our trials because they help make us what we're supposed to be in you. And we just uh, pray, God, that you'll be with us tonight. And that as we hear your word, it will sink down into our ears like Jesus said. And that we'll be more like you when we leave here. In Jesus' name, amen. So here I want you to continue to think about uh, America as we study here in Hosea. We've got a couple of, uh, couple of verses in chapter 7. I'm just going to back up to verse 1 and come right on through here. But uh, think about America. Think about what God is saying to America here uh, in these last days. Here you go, Rob. Uh, he says... When I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was uncovered. Now, I think I've shared this with you before. When God talks about Ephraim and Samaria, he's talking about the whole northern group. Ephraim was the largest tribe, and he just kind of identifies them that way. And he does that uh, a lot in Scripture. He says, the iniquity of Ephraim was uncovered, and the wickedness of Samaria. So God, this is the only northern prophet that pinned something down, or that God used to pin something down. But he speaks to the north primarily, and then he also gives things for the southern tribes. Uh, and they're supposed to see what God's doing in the north and, and, and learn from it. They don't, because 200 years after the northern tribes get judged, then the southern tribes get judged, because God is not a respecter of persons. He says, so they're, they're, when God would have healed them, he said, more iniquity was uncovered. And the wickedness of Samaria, for they have committed fraud. A thief comes in, a band of robbers takes full outside. Now, uh, God hates all sin. So, the, where there's a lot of looting and stuff that's went on in our country and still going on. Carjackings. God hates all that. He hates it all. He hates sin. And He despises that kind of stuff. When somebody takes something from someone else that doesn't belong to them. I know we herald things about abortion and murder and sexual perversion, but God hates robbery. He hates cheating and lying and stealing. He hates all that. And so he says, They do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. So somewhere there's going to be a day of reckoning. As I closed last Wednesday... We focus that the day of reckoning has already taken place at Calvary if you receive Jesus as your Savior. If you follow Him, if you repent and turn from your wicked ways. That, then our reckoning already took place on the cross. God judged our sin in His only begotten Son. However, if we and most of the world is refusing this, many are going to destruction or slash hell and few are going to... Uh, heaven, because they do not accept the judgment of their sin in Christ, 
then they're going to have to stand before God for it themselves. And that ain't going to work out. That's not going to work out. People are not, God's not going to feel sorry for anybody. He is a righteous God and He judges righteously. And the root word of righteous is what? Right. God judges right. He knows what everybody should. There'll be no pleas of insanity before God. He knows everybody's heart. He knows why they made the decisions they made. We may fool people. We may even get to a place. Have you ever seen somebody deceive themselves? I've seen people like that. I've had people like that in my circle over the years. They've deceived themselves. They've told so many lies and believed so many, and, and they start believing their own lies. And, and so, you know, when we see somebody, this is the world's terminology, crash and burn, as we say in our culture, that didn't happen overnight. They've been making bad choices and bad and one bad choice just sets, you, sets us up. I think Paul talks about this. He calls it the wrath of God is laid up for people who refuse to repent. Or gay is the Greek word. And it means, the best way I can describe that for you is in the Greek is that last pebble that hits that slide before it brings the slide off. Or some of you may have done this before. You put one more thing on that shelf in the closet of the garage and bam, it came down. That's the definition of that word in Romans there in chapter 1 where he talks about people are storing up wrath against themselves. Now, this needs to be reconciled. If you've not reconciled this, I'm talking to everybody who's listening and watching or anybody in this building. You need to reconcile that God owns everything. He made everything, including you and I. And that's just the way it is. Now, if you don't like it, it's not going to change that. And all of us, the Bible says, are going to have to stand before Him someday and give an account of ourselves. We want to be standing not in our own righteousness because that's not going to work. We want to be standing clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And why, if you've married Jesus, as a Christian, we married Jesus, why would we not want to live a life that pleases Him? Why, if you're married to Jesus, why would you want to do stuff that he don't want you to do we're talking about relationship now if all you've got is religion you're going to split hell wide open anyway but if you have a relationship to Jesus he becomes first in our lives and if he becomes first in our lives why would we want to do things that he don't approve of why would we want to do things that he's again and, and then again what he's asked us to do doesn't help him at all and what I mean by that is when you and I become Christians and follow God, we get all the benefit from that. He hung on a tree. Do you think he felt good dragging that old splintery cross on his back that had already been shredded like hamburger meat and then nailed to that thing once they got him up there? Do you think he was enjoying that? In other words, what I'm saying to you and I is when you come to Christ, you don't add anything to God. We're like little children to him, right? He can get his preaching done with a donkey. He don't need me. He can get his work done with a great fish. He don't need us. He chooses us. The reason he calls us little children is we're like little children to him. You're a little two-year-old who can't do a thing but cause you stress. Right? You bring them in. You love them because they bring you joy. Right? I'm talking about the physical things they bring to the table. 
that little two-year-old don't add any power to the family. They can't mow the grass. They can't change their own diaper. They can't do anything. Except eat and cry. But you get so much pleasure from that, right? Because that's how God is with us. We, the Bible says that we bring Him pleasure. So we don't add anything to God. I used to hear people saying, I probably said it myself before I felt like the Holy Spirit corrected me. Oh, God wanted, He saved that movie star so He could use. No, He didn't. He saved that movie star because He loved him. Well, He wants to save that guy because it. No, He saves them because He sets His love on them. God's already proved that rocks can take our place, animals can take. God can get His work done whether you and I show up or not. So what I'm saying to you about salvation in this relationship is we're the ones that gets all the benefits. We're like Rocky's wife. Remember those, uh, is it up to like Rocky 13 now or whatever? Adrian, after the, the fight's over, she looks the same. She's all dressed nice. Not, her makeup's all in place. Rocky steps in the rings and gets his brains beat out. And she gets all the benefits, Right? That's us. Jesus went to the cross, right, and took our place, took a beating. And Isaiah, where it talks, Isaiah talks about prophetically what Christ is going to do for us. He says he took war wounds. He went to war for us and bought us back, just like this book talks about. And think about how frustrating it was for Hosea to go retrieve his wife over and over again knowing that she was his wife and she was running around with whoever, and he kept going and bringing her back, just like God did with Israel. That's what he did with us. We were his creation. We, we were sold into slavery by our own, our own sin, and Jesus came to buy us back, even though God's the one that made us. Now, that's love. If you Listen, if, there's some things that if somebody stole from me, and this has happened to me, and took them to the pawn shop, I wouldn't buy them back. They ain't worth buying back. But there's some things that I would. And I have. The value, right? God could have looked down here and said, You guys, you guys, you're going to do your own thing. I'm done. But he didn't. He came down here seeing us all enslaved. You remember the best quote I think I've ever run across? I ran here, read a couple of weeks ago or three from St. Bernard from the 1100s, that God saw us in our misery, and He didn't just extend a hand. He came down in our misery to redeem us from it. That's who we are. Hosea has given us a picture of God's love, that He would buy us back even though we were His creation to start with. And then he says, They don't consider in their hearts that I remember their wickedness, nor, nor their own deeds have surrounded them. Now their own deeds have surrounded them. They are before my face. So everything, nothing escapes God. And he says, they, they make a king glad with their wickedness and the princes with their lies. So now the leadership's involved, right? Now think about America. I think it was Washington, D.C. who changed the definition of lying. This happened a few years ago. Uh, probably it's happened in the 20, uh, since 2000. But somewhere in 2000, you'll remember this because now they use it all the time. It's like uh, sodomy went from sodomy to being gay. Adultery went from adultery to an affair. That's how the world works, right? They, from God's earth to mother. They try to lessen and deaden the blow and redirect everything. But if you'll remember this, this I believe this started in Washington, D.C. with leaders. 
He didn't lie. She didn't lie. She just misspoke. What do you think God calls it? He calls it a lie. But see, we water it down to make ourselves feel better about about doing wrong. And that's how the devil keeps blinding people. So they're, they're doing this, and the leadership's all good with it. They are all adulterers. Like an oven heated by a baker, he ceases stirring the fire after the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. In the day of our king, princes have made him sick. Inflamed with wine, he stretched out his hand with scoffers. So even the people that God anointed and set up to be leaders are falling into the same old problem. They prepare their heart like an oven while they lie in wait. Their, bas- their baker sleeps all night. And in the morning, he, it burns like a flaming fire. They are all hot like an oven and have devoured their judges, the people who were trying to make right decisions, and their kings have fallen. None among them calls upon me. How many times do we have anybody from Washington, D.C. Calling, calling on the Lord? Now, they're responsible. Do you realize... Be not many masters. That's just not talking to pastors. That's talking to presidents, governors, kings, fathers. And so, be not many masters, you'll receive the great judgment. He said, no one, none of them call upon me. That's what we need, need to be doing. In fact, one of the last clips I remember a couple of years ago from Congress, it was in the house, one of the guys stood up on the floor when somebody tried to bring up God about a situation, and he said, the business of God has no place in this house of legislation. That's America. I don't think politics has destroyed America. I think turning away from God is what's destroying America. It affects politics. It affects education. It affects the family. It affects the church. It affects everything. But our problem is sin. Our problem's not getting enough money to do this or that or the other or having more advanced technology to pull ourselves out of a hole. We need to call on God. Some trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. We need to get to a place. And you know what? If you're serious about God, you're going to go in places like that. He's going to keep working on you and I if we're really wanting Him to be everything in our life and put us in places where we have to continually trust Him. Not trust in princes like He talks about in the Scripture. So God's doing the same thing, I believe, here in America. Look what He said. Ephraim has mixed himself among the peoples. Now, God forbid them to intermingle with people who worship false idols. He told them not to have trade agreements with them, and not to make military alliances with them. That's what he told. And when Josiah became king, he said he wasn't going to use the chariots and the horses from Egypt. He said, you go get the word of God out and let's see what he says. They had revival under Josiah because he was seeking God and not seeking help from Egypt like so many of the other ones did. And he's going to say something here in a minute that shows you exactly, I think, what's going on in this country. Ephraim's mixed himself among the peoples. Ephraim is like a cake unturned. 
And, that, and before I get out of the Old Testament, before you think that's just Old Testament, Paul said the same thing with us. He's, in the New Testament, he said, Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. What fellowship does darkness and light have together? I mean, so he tells us in the New Testament the same issue. A little leaven in the New Testament, same thing was said here, leavens the whole lump. And so we're still called to not live in darkness and to not hang out with darkness. We're called to be lights. Now, you see in the New Testament people who minister to others in public places, just like Jesus who met that woman at the well. It's one thing to share with people and, and eat with people and to try to share Christ with them. It's another thing to run with them. And he says, Ephraim has mixed himself among the peoples. Ephraim is a cake unturned. Aliens have devoured his strength, but he does not know it. Somebody told me just this week that if Americans knew how much of their land was owned by foreigners now, they'd freak out. You can build a, you can build a temple all in the name of liberty. They miscall it freedom. Freedom, only true freedom comes from God because that's an internal condition. Liberty is what we're really talking about, but they don't, they don't know the difference. But you can come to this country and we'll let you build an, an idol to a false god. We'll let you build a temple to a false which we shouldn't do if we're going to follow the Lord. But you go to Saudi Arabia and try to build one, you'll wind up in prison at the very least. We, we have made military alliance trade agreements in this country with people who worship demons, false gods. And we're paying the price for it. They said the, this, this generation that's alive now and the teenage generation will be the first generation in America just like Rome had. Rome had the same problem. You need to read why Rome fell, the seven causes of why Rome fell. You need to brief yourself on that. And you also need to see what God's saying, Paul said, for our learning. What he, and I would, I'm in America, so I'm talking to America. But you know what? If there's a preacher in Iraq, if there's a preacher in Russia, if there's a preacher in China, he needs to be telling the same things. All these nations have turned their back on God. The Bible says in the book of Psalms that the nation that forgets God will be turned into hell. And the more we forget God, the more trouble we have. And so we, our, our enemies are coming in. He said, they're, they're, the aliens have devoured his strength, but he does not know it. Yes, gray hairs are here and there on him, yet he does not know it. In other words, he's being devoured. And that's one of the ways God judges nations. He drops the hedge and lets the enemy come in. He done it with his own people, Israel. He dropped the hedge. Babylon came in, ransacked. Then Babylon took it too far, the prophet said, and God dropped the hedge on Babylon and another nation come in and run them down, the Medes and Persians, right? And then they went too far against God and God dropped the hedge on them and the Greeks come in. And then they went too far and God dropped the hedge on them and Rome come in and took over basically the known world. That's one of the ways God judges a nation is he starts dropping the hedge and, and the people of pagan lands begin to come in and infiltrate and start taking over. And that, that's, that's God's way. You can read the scripture and, and verify that with history. That's, that's how God judges people. A lot of times he'll drop the hedge and let other nations come in and bring judgment on them. 
So he says he don't understand. And the pride of Israel testifies to his face, but they do not return to the Lord their God. Now, look here at verse, uh, I want to share something with you. Let's go to Revelation chapter 3 in just a second. But in, in verse 9 he says, excuse me, in verse 8 he says, Ephraim has mixed himself among the peoples. So that's why God told them, Israel, he said, do not mix yourself with people who worship false gods. Now, God was okay if they repented. Ruth was a Moabitess. They were some of the most wicked people in the world's history. But Ruth was one of the best women in the world's history. But she said something that's interesting. She said, your God will be my God and your people. She was willing to come and accept the true God's ways. So God, all, this has always been about grace and mercy. God was willing to bring. Now Orpah, her sister, went back. The Bible says she turned and went back. But Ruth said, I want to go where the true God's at. And then God started blessing her, right? Boaz, she came into Boaz's home. And she's in the lineage of Christ. So God's, it's always been whosoever will. But you don't get to bring your false God into the true God's presence. You don't get to do that. You have to. And, and here's something I want to say to anybody that says, well, it's okay to have this pet sin or that pet sin or that person was born that way. Listen, we were all born into sin. Whatever the devil tricked you with, whether it was immorality, whether it was addiction, whether it was a false God, it's still all the same game. He plays the same game. He just uses different tools. So he get, he, the devil is not trying to make everybody one thing. The devil, he's not trying to make everybody an addict. He's not trying to make everybody a pervert. Here's all the devil cares about. He just wants you to put something else in front of God. It doesn't matter if it's some kind of addiction. It doesn't matter if it's some kind of perversion. It doesn't matter if it's a false God. It doesn't matter if it's money. It doesn't matter if it's another human being. He just wants you to put something in front of God. He wants you to have a life of pursuit about something in your life is more important to you than God. Because Jesus said you can't love anybody more than me and be my disciple. So that's all the devil's up to. It doesn't matter what trick he uses. He's just trying to get you. And I, I, I've been doing this for a long time. And I've had people in my office and said, you know what? Uh, according to Scripture, you're, you shouldn't be going that route. And they would rather go that route, whatever the route is, than to choose God. The rubber meets the road. And it don't always meet the road immediately. Some people will come to church and they'll get excited about it. It's new stuff going on, new circle of people, new stuff going on even physically in the church. It's all a good time until they get confronted whether you're going to love God more than that, whatever that is, or you're going to love that more you're going to love God. And there's no plainer speech in the whole Bible than what Jesus said there. He said, you can't love anybody more than me and be my disciple. And I've watched people over the years choose different things. Sometimes it's been a person. Sometimes it's been something else. Sometimes it's been material things. They chose those things. They became first in their life. And I'm going to say this, sometimes it's been children. And that's where people get a little bit uh, sensitive, right? Well, you okay? No. No. You can't love anybody. I don't care how beautiful that little sinner is. <laughs> and I love them. 
You know, if they made spoons where you could eat grandchildren, I could just, I love them. But you can't love them more. And you're not doing them a favor. Your people in your circle need to know that God's first. And why? Because He gives us everything. And we're going to have to stand before Him someday. So everybody needs to see that message in all of us. Because that's, that's, we're not helping anybody. When we drop God's standard, we're not helping anybody. I know we may think we're being empathy, showing empathy. But if you drop the truth, that's not empathy. And, and that's a challenge we have. Because we live in a world that's nuts. And some of them are in our tree, aren't they? And that's hard. We all know people in our circle that claim to love God, and they don't really give a hoot about God. They use Him as a cloak. They're not dedicated. They're not followers. They just use Him as a cloak. We know some that could care less about God. They don't even pretend about it, right? They're blind. They're just running 100 miles an hour after that thing or that life they've chosen. So it's hard. It's hard to separate that at times. When you see people leading lives of destruction and you want them to go to heaven so badly. And we all face that. So in verse 8 he says, Ephraim is a cake unturned. I want to show you what that kind of reference is. Let's go to Revelation chapter 3. It's the same kind of language that we see here to the angel of the church of Laodicea. A cake that's unturned has no value. And here's why. The same thing he said to Laodicea. He said, verse 14 of chapter 3, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, to, be, to the beginning of creation of God. You don't ever lose this truth. God made you and every human being He made. He made everything. I say from time to time, How'd you like to be God, make everything and get credit for nothing? That'd make us furious, right? And he says, I know your works that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Well, that's, that's a different way of saying the same thing that, I, that Hosea said here. Hosea said the same thing uh, in, in that verse 8. That's what he's saying here. He's saying Ephraim is a cake unturned. That means it's burned on one side and doughy on the other. Who wants a cake like that? I know some of you weirdos eat burnt popcorn, but I'm just saying. <laughs> whole house, come in, the whole house is, smells like there's been a fire. <laughs> but that's the same kind of language he's using here in Revelation. He's using the same kind of language. He's saying, I wish you were cold or hot. Now, to, this has been this passage has been butchered over the years. It's starting to get corrected, and I've been trying to do it for the last twenty five years. He's not saying I wish you were an evil sinner or a good person, but because you're neither one of those, <laughs> I don't want nothing to do. That's not what he's saying. This these people made ice have, and they needed cold water and hot water to uh, liquefy it and then gel it, and they had viaducts all around the city. 
and they got this big idea, which is a pretty good thought if you think about it, run viaducts from those hot springs and cold springs, use the water once it got down the hill. But the problem they ran into in Laodicea is the cool water warmed up and the hot water cooled off. And the time it got to where they needed it, it wouldn't have any value. So basically what God's saying here, you're no value. You're not, you don't bring any value because you're living. And the whole church here was caught up in the world. And that appears to be the last phase of God's time before we see the end of the world. You've got the early churches. I believe all of these represent church ages. They represent individuals. They represent churches. And they represent church ages. And so when you look at each of the seven churches, which also means completion or everything's done, right? It looks like we are certainly in the Laodicean period. They were very materialistic. They were caught up in themselves. They thought they were, could see, but God said you're really blind because you don't see spiritual things. You only see the natural. You're only living for this life. You're not living for the next life. So now they have no value. They look like the part. They're like those five virgins in Matthew 25. They look like they're doing okay, but really they're not. And so he says, because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Right? So he's saying you don't have any value. You're not useful. Because you're not doing the right thing. You're pursuing your own means. Which we've learned around here is eros, right? Love with a motive. they got hooks all in them. All they're thinking about is this life. And there's some... I'll tell you why. I'm going to make a... Some of you heard me say this in smaller groups. I'm going to say this publicly now. I'd rather die and go to heaven than to live in fear. The Bible says fear has torment, and it does. And all of us have faced fear in our lives before, and you'll face it again. That don't mean you have to give way to it, but that's just how the devil works. Fear is very tormenting. The Bible says perfect love casts out all fear. And so I want to live in that. I'd rather die and go to heaven as to live in fear. Because if you go cross over to the other side, it's awesome, right? I mean there's no one we've sent to the other side that would come back here. You may miss them. But they would, why would they? Why would they leave heaven and come back here? I mean, I'm thankful Jesus even did it. He probably... <laughs> but he left it for us, right? But I, if we had a phone where we could call them and say, Hey, Mom, would you come back? Click. They wouldn't even take the call. I ain't coming back. I'm right here at the feet of Jesus. Why would I come back to there? We need to really get a grasp of what heaven's like. We got a lot to look forward to. It'll help us. When you lose, when the, or I should say it this way, when the devil loses the fear of death in our life, he loses most of his ground. When, he, when we no longer fear death, and we don't have to, because to live is Christ, to die is gain, Paul said. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When the devil no longer holds the fear of death over us, when we realize that Jesus has conquered death, hell, and the grave, and that we're in Him, and that He has our days numbered, that you can't die one minute too soon. 
Unless you get in rebellion, that's an exception. But we're not, if you're going to follow the Lord, you're not going to die. I don't, I'm not talking about, we all make, miss the mark. I'm not talking about somebody who fails to miss the mark. I'm talking about somebody who turns their back on God and goes back to their old life. As long as you're following the Lord, you can fall. But a righteous man, you're not going to leave here until he's done with you. I believe that. If I didn't believe that, you know what I'd be doing tonight instead of standing in front of you? I'd be out playing golf or something. Not, nothing wrong with playing golf. But I'm just saying... I wouldn't be stand- if I didn't believe that God was fully in charge of everything, I wouldn't get in this pulpit. But I'm convinced of that. I'm convinced that God is in charge of everything. And I'd rather live 60 years going full bore, kicking the devil's teeth in every time I get a chance, and not being afraid of him than to live 95 scared to death. I don't want those kind of years. I want the years where I know that my God is fully in charge. And I believe that. So he's telling them the same thing. Same kind of language. Use a different phrase there. And I'm back in Hosea. He said Ephraim is a cake unturned. So they, they're no value. They're burnt on one side and doughy on the other one. Has anybody ever got a pancake like that? Has anybody ever made a pancake like that? <laughs> or a piece of, you know, the fritter cornbread, you know. Uh, they, I love all cornbread. Uh, and I probably would eat cornbread if it was still doughy inside. I love cornbread. So he says, aliens have devoured your strength. The pride of Israel, verse 10, testifies to his face, but they do not return to the Lord. What do you think God would say if he showed up in America and got a megaphone and all the news media was there? What do you think he would say to America? Do you think he'd say, why don't you guys go to church more? Do you think he'd say, why don't you guys sing more to me? I think, I think he would say, why don't you all return to me? That's what he would say. And then he'd probably drop the mic and walk off. That's all he should, that, that's all he should have to say, is why don't you return? And that's where that word comes from. That's the Hebrew word, teshuva, or teshuba is the original word. They, use it, they turn that B into a V at times. Teshuva is the most popular pronunciation of it now. That is what happened on Monday. Teshuva started for the nation of Israel. And I want to share this with you, not to be religious, but for you to understand the value of what's happening or what should be happening with God's people. Teshuva started this Monday because Yom Kippur is 40 days away from this Monday. Feast of Trumpets or Rosh Hashanah is 30 days away. So 30 days before the Feast of Trumpets kicks off, Teshuvah kicks off. Feast of Trumpets has a part of three days. It is the one feast that represents the rapture of the church or the calling out of God's people. It, it has parts of three days. So it starts in the evening because God Always starts his day in the evening. You go back to the Genesis and find that out. The evening and the morning were the first day. When I fast, I start in the evening because that's when the day starts. And then on this, Teshuva goes last for 40 days. Inside of Teshuva are those two festivals. The Day of Atonement is one day. That's the 40th day of Teshuva. But it is the 10th day from the beginning of the Feast of Trumpets. All right, and let me. I'm gonna, I told you he was going to do some prophecy stuff here with Hosea because he talks a lot about that. So, in the what we call the early rain, 
there are four festivals, right? There is Pentecost is the fourth one. And there is unleavened bread. There is Passover and first fruits. That's called the early rain. I grew up in churches where we would sing about it. We didn't know what we was talking about back then, but we sang about it. We'd say, send down the rain, Lord, send down the rain. Send down the latter rain. Well, the latter rain is these last three festivals. And that is the Feast of Trumpets or Rosh Hashanah. And that is the, uh, Yom Kippur or Day of Atonement. And then the last one is Tabernacles. Now, Jesus fulfilled these first four with His own life. He didn't fulfill them on some strange time. He fulfilled all four of these festivals on the very days that they happened. It, if I went to any science lab and said, well, uh, A happened and B happened and C happened and D happened, but E, F, and G is not going to happen. No science lab would allow that. Because you set a precedent, right? So I'm going to say some things to you tonight. If you've not heard me teach before on some of this, that might make your eyes come out like slinkies. But I believe Jesus is going to fulfill the latter rain on the very days they happen, just like He did these other ones. I believe the Lord's coming back on the Feast of Trumpets. I don't know the day nor the hour, but I know the season. And the, the Bible says that twice. And that was actually uh, a cliche for the children and stuff when they, would, when they would have all these trial runs with the Feast of Trumpets. They, when the Feast of Trumpets came, the father was responsible to have his family within proximity of hearing the trumpet sound. Because when they heard the trumpet sound, he and his family, listen to this, are supposed to ascend up to the place where God is worshipped and assemble with the rest of God's people. That's what happens on the Feast of Trumpets. Now the Feast of Trumpets happens on three days. It's kicked off with a new moon. And they didn't know when the trumpet was going to sound of those three days, but they knew the season. Now I can't tell you if the Lord's coming back in 2022 or if He's coming back in 2037. Should I say anything, Lord? Or... My leg's shaking, I can't. <laughs> Starting to feel like Elvis up here. <laughs> so, we don't know the date or the hour. We don't even know the year. But we know the season. So my wife, we've been doing this for years. We get kind of giddy when we're waiting on the Feast of Trumpets to happen. Because we've watched and read in the scripture of how Jesus fulfilled the first four, which is the early rain, it's a stretch to say he's not going to do the last three, which is the latter rain. That would be totally out of character for God. So we know this season. So these, what happens 40 days before Yom Kippur, I'm going to give you a little more understanding of something that I'm digging around on. You can dig around on it too when I share it with you here because we're going to go into Revelation this fall. But when, I, when you get... The 40 days kicked off. Teshuvah means to return to the Lord. 
So Israel, and I think it's good for Christians, although I'm not mandating it. I can't, I can't mandate you to do nothing anyway. You've got your own relationship with God. I'm just trying to prod you to go in the right direction. But I think it's a good practice for Christians to take this season and get ready for the Lord's return. Remind yourself of how close it is and do some introspection in these 40 days and see maybe where you've not marked up to where God's asked you to be. Maybe you've left something undone or maybe you've stepped into something in the last 12 months that you realize God's not pleased with and you need to back out of that. I think it's a good time for Christians to do the same thing, even though it's not a religious thing for us to do that. So this teshuva starts. And there's a, there's a thing that I remind myself of every time when this season comes. The teshuva had started, and this, this story goes that the guy's walking by the shoe cobbler, who's a Jew. and there, It's a Jewish village. And he says, ah, the shoe cobbler's just staring out the window. And... Uh, and so the guy passing by says, Ah, do you not have anything to mend? And the shoe cobbler's reply is, The day of judgment is coming and I've not mended myself. So this is a time of introspection. Am I being what God's called me to be? Am I living up to Shuva? So what happens is, <clears throat> Feast of Trumpets kicks off 30 days into this Teshuvah. <clears throat> now what the Israelites understand that when the Feast of Trumpet happens, they've only got a small window of time left to get right with God or they'll have to wait the next year. Remember, the high priest only went in one time a year behind the veil. Now, when you go to Revelation, and all of us have probably read this passage, right? When he talks to that one church, you're going to be tried for 10 days. Well, where'd that come from? I read that for years thinking, 10 days? I mean, we don't really see 10 popping up anywhere in the Scripture. See 12s and 7s and 3s and 1s and 40s and 70s and 7s. There it is. 10 days. When the Feast of Trumpets kicks off till the Day of Atonement, that is 10 days of trials. Trying the people. Calling people in to return to the Lord. Spurgeon said, why do, you know, we, we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and Spurgeon says we need to be refilled. And if you go through the book of Acts, Peter was in on several of those because he was like us, right? Peter was real. He'd get in the flesh. And Spurgeon said the reason Christians need to be refilled from time to time with the Spirit and renewed to the Spirit is because we leak. The world slips in on us. Altars have got reduced to just being around for people to repent and get saved, redeemed, born again, whatever you want to call it. But that wasn't God's intention. The reason Abraham was constantly building altars is because an altar is where we go to reassess God's claims on us. The reason you should have an altar and I should have an altar, whatever that means to you, is to remind myself of who owns me, who has claims on my life. That's what altars are for. And so this time of 40 days of going to the altar of Teshuvah 
And I know Israel made everything religious. And, and most of the church has done that as well. I'm not trying to get religious with you. I'm trying to be relational with you. Why wouldn't you want to spend a little extra time with God and make sure everything's good? So teshuva is what he's saying here. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, but they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek Him for all this. So they're not returning. So God's going to turn up the heat because they're not returning. We know it's not popular preaching. We probably don't even like to rehearse it to ourselves. But we know sometimes God uses affliction in our lives to do things. The psalmist said, I believe it's in Psalm 102, I may be off on the number, that he weakened my strength in the way. So sometimes God uses affliction and adversity to train us. In fact, the book of Hebrews says Jesus learned obedience by the things he suffered. So there's a lot for us to glean. But here's the thing we've got to remember. You're never outside of his care. No matter how rough the storm is. And if we don't go through a storm or two, we'll never get the value of watching him walk on the water. What do you think that did for all those men? Could God have kept those three guys out of the furnace? Sure he could have. But what do you think kind of testimony they had when they come out? We don't like the furnace. I'm with you. Hey, I'm with you. God, let's all petition God and say, stop it with the furnaces. But sometimes they have value, don't they? They build our faith. Sometimes they purify stuff in us. They certainly bolster our testimony of the goodness and the greatness of God. So there's a lot of good things that come out of our trials. And if Jesus went through trials, we're not above. The disciples are not above their master. And so he says, Ephraim, again, he's talking to the northern, also is like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt and then go to Syria. <laughs> they, they've lost their mind. Listen, do you hear America in here? Sure. We hear America in here. I, I don't know if I... You know, there's a scripture in Jeremiah where God says... He told Israel, he said, you guys have done things I've not thought about. That's pretty strong language coming from God. They let these people come in with their idols, and they started worshiping. Israel started sacrificing their children. They started laying them on burning hot arms of Molech and chanting so loud that they couldn't hear the baby screams until it died. They started putting babies, live babies, sealing them up in the walls of their houses like the Moabites and the Ammonites for good luck. And if they had an unwanted child, they got so decrepit with God, they would cast that child out into the valley of Baca and places and let it die, let it be torn to pieces by wild animals. They picked all that stuff up from poor pagan lands. Pagan people, the enemy. He said, wherever they go, I will spread my net on them. He said, they call for Egypt, and they wind up going around. <clears throat> Wrong way. <clears throat> There's a guy I know who married a lady from Taiwan, Thailand. And he, good, he was a good Christian fellow. But she couldn't 
read road signs and stuff, right? She was, so her 12-year-old son, who had grew up here in America and, you know, went to school, they were going to uh, Knoxville. And so he falls asleep. And when he wakes up, this is a true story. When he wakes up, the sign he reads is, Welcome to Atlanta, Georgia. Now, it's two hours and something from here to Knoxville. It's six, seven hours to Atlanta. They get turned around. I don't know what happens if he falls asleep again or what. Next thing she reads is, Next exit, Lexington, Kentucky. Turned around. That's what's happening to Israel. They're so lost, they don't even know where they're going. And so he says, Whenever they, wherever they go, I'll spread my net on them. I will bring them down like birds of the air. I will chastise them according to their con- the congregation has heard. Woe to them, for they have fled from me. Destruction to them, because they have transgressed against me. Though I redeem them, Yet they have spoken lies against me. They did not cry out to me with their heart when they wailed upon their beds. They were just misery. They wouldn't call out to God. They assembled together for grain and new wine, and they rebel against me. Though I discipline and strengthen their arms, yet they devise evil against me. Do you understand? Our sin is against God first. When we sin, we're doing that against God. That's why David, when he confessed, he said, Against thee and thee only have I sinned. He understood that it was against God. It's not, I just misspoke or I I made a boo-boo. We sin against God, who gives us everything. In fact, the next breath we're going to draw. They return. He sees trying to get them to return to Shuva. They return, but not to the Most High. They are, like treacherous, they are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword for the cursings of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. You know, when Ananias and Sapphira came into the church house that day, uh, what made me think of this is there was a foul-mouthed comedian. I thought, you know, I, you keep waiting for God to have enough, right? I watched this news broadcast, a clip of a news broadcast from another state in this country out west, and this comedian who makes fun of God and Jesus and everything made a comment about Jesus, collapsed on the stage, busted their skull, broke their skull. I mean, just collapsed for no reason. Was actually bragging about how healthy they were. And then they brought Jesus into it, made a mockery of him, and then collapsed on the stage. I was thinking about Ananias and Sapphira. Here's what, here's what America's lost. <clears throat> I pray that that woman sees the error of her ways and comes to Christ. That's what this is all about. But we all, and, and it happens to us too. It can happen to you and me. We always think judgment ain't coming today. Don't we? It's just our nature. It ain't come. I mean, you could tell people, we see all the signs that Jesus told us about, but you could tell, we could run into certain groups and they say, oh, no, America's coming back. We're going to be on top again. You see all this kind of stuff, 
going on because we don't think judgment will happen today. I'll leave you with this story because this is our problem here in America. Just don't let it be a problem for you and I. The guy said, this, I'm sure a passage of scripture with the guy said, okay. And probably God was dealing with him to do other things, just like Naboth. Remember him? David took his wife, Nabal. David said, we need some stuff. He refused him. He's filthy rich. And he's filthy rich because of his ancestors, not what he'd done. And he turned against God. He had a chance to bless God's kingdom. He turned away. He died of a heart attack. And then his wife, Abigail, came and brought the stuff. She was blessed and continued to be blessed. But he was knucklehead. I don't know where God draws the line for people when he says, you know what, as far as you're going. But the longer we resist God, the more wrath we're storing up against ourselves. Finally, he said, you know what? I'm not going to help nobody. I'm not going to do mission work. I'm just going to build bigger barns. I'm not going to give nothing away and help the poor or give to the church or give mission work. I'm just going to build bigger barns. And what happened? That night... His soul was required of The reality is none of us have the promise of tomorrow. That's why we need to be right today. But there is this overwhelming sense, and I don't think it's just America, I think it's the entire world, that we just don't think judgment's going to happen today. We just keep putting it off way out there. And that's what got Israel in trouble. That's eventually what got Judah in trouble. Lord, we thank you for this time we've had together. We just thank you that you're opening our eyes to where we're at. Help us to be lights and help us to pray for those who don't know you, who are blind, just like this comedian. Lord, I pray that through this series of circumstances, she'll meet the true and only God. That you'll show her that you've given her another chance. Unlike Ananias and Sapphira, they didn't get another chance, Lord. And we know all that's calculated by you and you have, you know all things. But this woman has another chance. So we pray that she'll find her way to salvation, that our eyes will be open. Lord, we pray for our whole nation, our politicians, our leaders, some of them, Lord, and some of them, we know there's a few that love you, but that it would happen to more of them, God, that they could see the value of returning to you. Lord, we pray for your mercy and grace that you would help us to be vocal and to share the gospel with the people in our circle, and not just the people in our circle, but the people we happen to bump into. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name.